0: again. I want to, if I, if I may, take care of just a few uh, things before we dig into our sermon and the text this morning. The first of which is to draw your attention to the guest registration cards that you'll find located around the room in the backs of the pews. So wherever you're seated this morning, you'll find in the pew back in front of you, one of these registration cards. We want to ask you to take that. If you are a newcomer and you're worshiping with us this morning, we want to ask you to fill that out later in our service this morning when we receive the offering, if you would drop that in our offering. Play to be record of the fact that you were here with us. And really, we would, uh, we would be grateful to know that you are with us for a couple of reasons. One, we want to be able to pray for you and and just pray that God would continue to direct you, direct your steps, direct, if you're searching for a church home, direct that, that, that process of listening to the Lord and following his, his will and his direction for your life. And also, importantly, if there are needs in your life prayer needs, Uh, you're looking for a place to serve, a a way to get connected, things of that nature, you can indicate that as well using this card. And so if you'll do that, we want to be able to follow up with you soon. Also, when you came in this morning, you received a worship guide, lots of useful announcements and things listed in here. Also, a place to follow along in just a moment as we study in Mark chapter 16. And so I would encourage you to have that handy and follow along with our, our passage, our study this morning in Mark chapter 16. And then, Uh, Maybe perhaps one of the most important things I I, I want to say this morning, uh, kind of switching gears and turning away from the idea of Uh, uh, announcements and just telling you about things that are happening, is just to simply recognize that this is Memorial Weekend. Of course, tomorrow is Memorial Day, a day that we honor those who have served in our armed forces. And so this morning, for all of the men and women who have served in our armed forces, we want to say to you that we are grateful for your service we honor your, your, your service to our country. We honor the way that you have given selflessly by putting our needs of national security and, and even more than just security, the, the, the defense of all that we hold dear and valuable, by putting that first and serving those high ideals. We thank you and we honor you for that. And for those who have given the ultimate sacrifice, those who have paid for our freedom with their life, we want to say today, again, that we, we celebrate, we honor their sacrifice. We recognize that freedom is not free. And, and so as we think on the lives given to defend all that we hold dear and true, this weekend, of all weekends especially, we just want to uh, take a moment just to say that we're grateful and that we are blessed to live in this land where God has placed us. You know, of all the places the Lord could have put us, any of us in the world, of all the places we could have been born, all of the places we could have lived, of all the times in human history, God chose to put us here and now. And we understand no doubt that's for a purpose and it is for a reason. But when we think about the many freedoms and the great blessings given to us for no other fact than simply that we were born into this great country. It ought to humble us to think that the Lord would entrust to us the stewardship of such a tremendous blessing. And may it be for all of us, as we think on that, as we reflect on that this weekend, may it be a reminder to us of God's greatness and our responsibility in light of all that the Lord has given to and blessed us with. Okay, Mark chapter sixteen, our text this morning. We're going to dive right in in a moment. And really, this is a this is a, a, a sort of a uh, a mile marker of sorts. Mark chapter sixteen, because we will be finishing our study in the Gospel of Mark. We have been studying in the Gospel of Mark all the way back to all the way back to the early fall of last year, right about the time that school started. And I think it's fitting that now that school has ended, that we are wrapping up our study with our text in Mark chapter 16 this morning. And we have now worked systematically through with the completion of Mark after today, we have worked systematically through the entire gospel of Mark, looking at the life, the ministry, the teaching of Jesus. And as we do, as we wrap Things up this morning with the study in mark chapter sixteen, then really in in many ways, it becomes for us i, I don 't want it to be just another thing that we stick on the the shelf, so to speak, that we file away in our minds that it kind of as okay that 's one more thing i 've learned, but this is in many ways the the, the culmination of and uh, perhaps we might even think it as the, the beginning point of what do we do with this? We, this is the culmination of the study, of the life, the ministry of Jesus. But the, the reason we study the life, the ministry of Jesus is not just so that we would gain more knowledge. It's not so that we would just know the stories. Those things are important, but there's something greater in all of that is so that we might center our lives around this truth. So we've, we've named this study through the gospel of Mark. We've named it The gospel changes everything. And even as we study this text this morning, we're going to see that truth lifted, elevated for us to see that the good news of Jesus, the hope of the gospel, truly has the power to change everything about our lives. We think about the, the word gospel even just means good news. You know, today when we think about news, oftentimes we think about Maybe in many ways, the, the, the struggles, the trouble in our world, so much of what we see in the news really is negative, isn't it? And, and, and so, so much of what we see in the news seems to highlight all of the problems, all of the brokenness, the, the division in our world today. But I'm thankful that as we study the Word of God, what we find is, is not You know, clickbait. It's not fake news. It truly is good news. It's the power of God that has the the ability to transform and change our hearts. And so may He use His good news, this gospel, to change us so that we would be a people moved by the good news. One of the things that we're going to find before we jump into Mark. Sixteen. I want to say this. One of the the things we're going to find in our study of Mark sixteen is that there is actually a section of the text. There is a you'll you'll find in your Bible a a note of some sort, a a line demarcating verses one through eight and nine. Uh, nine through twenty, you'll find you know some kind of reference there, and we're going to deal with that. I would venture to say that probably in your many years of attending church, you have heard relatively few, if any, sermons ever on Mark chapter sixteen, verses nine through twenty. And we're going to talk about that this morning, and even deal with that as we wade into this text and finish out our study in the Gospel of Mark. And so let's let's just jump in. Let's begin this morning. And as we do this, we're going to read through the text first and then come back and see the the power that this good news has for our lives. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them, confirmed the message By accompanying signs. So we find here this culmination, this final punctuation of the story of Jesus, that that of course centers around his resurrection. That's really the the key element in, in the Gospels themselves, certainly the key element in Mark's Gospel, is that Jesus died on the cross, but on the third day, gloriously, he rose. He, he was resurrected from the dead. The tomb was empty when they went to, to deal with his body on that day after the Sabbath. And so as we think on this good news this morning, as we reflect on this, and ultimately as we reflect on, on its meaning and its direction for us as believers today, I want to I talk about the good news and the, the, the power that it has for us the first thing that we see in this text is that there's good news here of an empty tomb. And so we read in the first five verses the story of how the two Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, that they went to the the tomb along with others and there they found that the stone was rolled away and that inside they saw what it describes here as a young man and that he says to them, you will not find Jesus whom you seek. This is good news of an empty tomb. There have, been, there have been skeptics over the years. There have been skeptics who have tried to explain away the the empty tomb, right? Many theories that have risen as to why the tomb was empty, that some have, have proposed that. Jesus' body was stolen by those who were his enemies, the religious leaders of the day. There are those who have supposed what they would refer to as the swoon theory, that he wasn't in fact dead, that he had just fallen asleep. There were others who would just simply argue that all of it was just sort of a ruse, that it, none of it was, was true to begin with. And, and these, All of these theories, here's, the, here's the, the main thing that they all share in common is that none of these different theories can account for the eyewitness testimony of many who saw Jesus and who declared that he was, in fact, resurrected from the dead. Even if you would say, well, what about about the theory that Jesus was just simply, that he was asleep, that he hadn't actually died? Well, then you would have to explain away the eyewitness testimony of skilled uh, of skilled warriors trained trained executioners who themselves had testified in fact that Jesus was dead the centurions that killed him. You would have to explain away the accounts of many who prepared his body, his, his beloved family and friends and, and, and those who were closest to him who prepared his body and placed it in the tomb here, the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You would have to explain away the fact that many testified to the fact that Jesus was in fact dead. And also, if you were to deal with this particular account, let's let's use this swoon theory as it's referred to, then you have to account for something as simple as how did he roll away the stone that was very large that had been placed in front of the tomb? It took a team of people to place it there. How could Jesus, if in fact he had been beaten, if in fact he had been Punished, persecuted the way that he had, if he had been crucified and somehow survived all of that in his fragile condition, his critical condition, as we would maybe describe it today, how could he muster the strength to roll the stone? No, when you add up all of the, all of the, the, the different theories, when you, when you apply just sound reasoning and eyewitness testimony, the only verifiable, the only plausible The only possible explanation is, in fact, as eyewitnesses declared, the tomb was empty and the Savior was risen. So we find good news of an empty tomb and, and, and importantly, good news of a risen Savior. See, if the tomb were empty, that's, that's important news. That's an important detail in and of itself, the fact that the tomb is empty. But all an empty tomb really proves is that the body that was once there is no longer there. That's all that really is proven when we say that the tomb was empty. But more than just an empty tomb, they found a risen Savior. We find numerous witnesses in the Gospels to the the resurrected Christ appearing to many. Even here it gives us the eyewitness testimony of these who saw him. It refers to those his his disciples who saw him as they reclined around the table, the two that saw him as they headed into the country. That's who we would know to as the, the, the men that Jesus appeared to on the way to Emmaus, right? There were the, the women who came to the tomb who were the first to discover. I, I find that perhaps in, in my own uh, mind when I think about eyewitnesses I go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul systematically lists out the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ and he, Paul even writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one point in time over 500 saw the resurrected Christ what does all of that add up to it adds up to the fact that many saw Jesus in his resurrected form. So we have good news, not only of an empty tomb, but truly good news of a risen Savior. What does this prove to us? Well, it proves that he, in fact, did what he promised he would do. That on the third day, he rose up victorious from the grave. That he conquered sin and death with his resurrection thus making a way for us to be forgiven and set free by faith in Jesus. And that really kind of points us to the third layer, if we want to think of it that way, of this good news, this good news of perfect forgiveness. Not only do they find the tomb empty, not only do they find the Savior risen, but they find, because of the power of the resurrected Jesus, they find their sins forgiven, Their guilt washed away by what Jesus himself referred to as the new covenant of his blood which was shed for those who trust in him. Look at verse 7 in particular. There's a subtle detail in verse 7 that is so important. But go, this young man at the tomb says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now, why is that significant that they say, go tell his disciples and Peter? Wasn't Peter one of the disciples? Why would Peter be singled out in such a way? A couple of reasons why. First of all, we, we understand that Mark's testimony to the life, the ministry of Jesus is secondhand, and it comes from Peter himself. Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark, was himself mentored by, discipled by the apostle Peter. And so some over time have made the argument that in many ways you might think of the gospel of Mark really as the gospel of Peter. Because what Mark is giving us, the testimony, the the word that Mark is giving us actually comes through the eyewitness testimony of Peter as related to Mark. Peter himself told Mark of this very important detail. But why would we key in on that phrase? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Well, because we know that Peter denied Jesus, just as Jesus had foretold, just as Jesus had predicted. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And what do we see in the Gospels? We see that exactly what Jesus predicted would happen, happened in John John chapter 21, the gospel of John, we find that John gives us the story of Jesus forgiving Peter and and what we would consider to be really restoring him through this, this great act of forgiveness. Three different times in John chapter 21 beginning in verse 15. Jesus directly addresses Peter and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus says to him, Then feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because just as Peter denied Jesus three times, three different times, Jesus attests to him the the forgiveness. It's a picture of the perfect forgiveness that we have through Jesus. That in the same way that Peter turned his back, that he denied Jesus and turned his back on him, His loving Savior, perfectly restored, forgave him. But not only Peter, us as well. By faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven and set free from our sins. And that's exactly what the the gospel here points us to. This good news of perfect forgiveness because of our faith in Jesus. Complete, perfect forgiveness in him. But then, not only that, forth we find this. Good news Confirmed by signs and wonders. Now, I want to take a moment, and I want to let's address the last the last half of Mark chapter sixteen. In your Bible, you probably will find a, a note, a footnote, or or uh, perhaps a line that's been drawn, or or something that sets apart. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And it will, it will reference in some manner the fact that the earliest manuscripts don't include Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now we've dealt a little bit with some other textual issues as we worked our way through the Gospel of Mark. And so it's no surprise to us that we find in these early manuscripts of the New Testament, we find different variations. In fact, I've told you along the way that When we see the variations in the text, we ought not to be concerned in in thinking that somehow that undermines the authority of the text. Or somehow that that could be used as evidence against the reliability of the Scripture. In fact, when we find these different variations, it, it actually works to affirm our belief and our confidence in the reliability of Scripture. Why is that? Well, because if what if the writers of the new testament if the the compilers of the earliest canons of the new testament if what they intended to do was remove any any possibility for any variation if what they intended to do was eliminate any of the texts that didn't agree these early copies that didn't agree with one another then they would have they would have sought out and destroyed any variation whatsoever and in fact when you consider other Ancient religious texts such as the Quran, that's exactly what they've done. Any variant forms of the Quran have been collected by the Muslims and destroyed. They've been burned. They've, and, and even today, the only authorized versions of the Quran that exist are actually in Arabic themselves. They're in the original language. In, in order to be a true, considered a true, Holy authorized version of that text. Other religious texts have sought, and, and the keepers of those texts have sought to remove any disagreement, any disparity, and yet the compilers of the New Testament, those who who put together the different books, wrestled through issues like which books belong, which don't. They wrestled through issues like how do we account for the fact that there are certain early Version, certain ancient manuscripts that may include uh, a certain wording or certain verses or certain subtle nuances and others that don't. What do we do with that? Specifically, let me just say this. I'm going to get really into the weeds for just a minute with this. The two oldest and most important Greek manuscripts are known as Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. And both of these do not include the second half of Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So the oldest and, and most reliable Greek manuscripts, as well as many manuscripts in other languages as well, do not include, and in fact, many of the ancient texts, many of the ancient manuscripts that do include Mark 16, 9 through 20, even include some form of a footnote, That even in these ancient works themselves, there's a footnote of sorts that says something to the effect of, in all likelihood, these verses were not a part of the gospel that Mark originally wrote. They reference that in some form. You may think, well, then why is it here? If if we don't believe that it was originally a part of the gospel that Mark wrote, then why, why haven't they removed it? Why is it here? Well, the reason that it's here is because there are, Many, many ancient works that do include these verses in fact, when you go back and you study earliest uh, manuscripts in in various languages, you find that there are more that include mark chapter sixteen verses nine through twenty than those that don't include it well then you say well wouldn't we then wouldn't we argue that if more included than don't then we should then we should include it in the bible and the Again, it, without digging too deep into uh, sort of a, a rabbit hole, let's just suffice it to say that the older, the oldest versions that we have don't include it. And so according to some of just the basic principles of what we call textual criticism, they would, they would propose that in all likelihood, it, it, it's, it seems most reasonable that Mark did not write verses 9 through 20, that it was added later. Why would it have been added? Well, we don't know that for certain, but the simplest explanation is just simply the fact that if you leave off at verse 8, it's a rather abrupt ending. And so in trying to, in trying to somehow summarize and even uh, sort of recapitulate the truths, in, in trying to connect things that would have occurred with the other Gospels and the book of Acts Somewhere along the way, these other verses were added to Mark chapter 16. Now, here's the here's in in spite of all of that, here's the thing that I want to say that will I hope bring some real assurance and, and again kind of affirm your confidence in the scripture. In all of this, there is nothing in Mark 16, 9 through 20, that contradicts the rest of Scripture or that in any way changes the the nature of the gospel or our understanding of salvation right do you read anything in these verses even verses that we we may look at and we may say well okay what about what about something like verse 17 these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. What, what do we do about those things? Well, actually, we can just go to the we can go to the Gospels. We can go to the Book of Acts, and we find all of these other signs and miracles accounted for in other accounts in the Gospels or the Book of Acts, and so. Even though we might look at this text and we might study this and say there's some suspicion about whether Mark actually wrote this as a part of his gospel, the truth is it does nothing to in any way undermine the authority of the scripture. And in fact, and in fact, what we do find in these verses, in this text, is we find sort of a, a summary of the, the early church. We find a summary of the activity of the ministry of the early church, right? After that he appeared to them, he tells them to go and proclaim the good news, to go in the world, proclaim the gospel, that others might believe and be baptized. Well, we find that in the gospels, right? Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, this is just a restatement of what we refer to as the Great Commission. What about, what about things like uh, that, that, that he was ascended into heaven, the Lord spoke these things and was taken up into heaven. Again, we find this in the Gospels, the story of Jesus' ascension accounted for in the Gospels. So none of this, none of this in any way undermines our, uh, our understanding of the life, the ministry, the message of Jesus, and none of it in any way causes us to doubt the reliability of the testimony of the gospel itself. If anything, if anything, it just seems that somewhere along the way, someone in an effort to try to maybe smooth out, someone who read this and thought, Mark, that's not a great ending to this story. Somebody tried to add to it and, and that particular text was copied again and again and, and gained widespread uh, widespread transmission in the life of the early church. What do we do with that? Well, th- this is the main thing that I want you to understand, is that although although maybe the signs point to the fact that perhaps Mark didn't write those verses, what we do know is that everything contained in those verses really just works to affirm the, the testimony of Mark and the other the other writers of the New Testament, the other gospel writers, Paul and and, and the others who penned the, the different letters and works of the New Testament. And that is to say that because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of our faith in him, our lives are transformed forever. See, this is the key truth. I want to bring us back to this main point. This is the key truth of the gospel of Mark And I would add to that of the entire New Testament. And even more than that, the scripture itself, all of the Bible. This is the key truth, is that this news, this good news, faith in Jesus Christ, this news changes everything. This news changes everything about our lives. The gospel in Mark is central to Mark's story. You remember in Mark chapter 1 many many weeks ago as we as we began our study we read in Mark chapter 1 that John the Baptist proclaimed this truth. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. From beginning to end we find the story of the gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus. And what is that story? That we can be forgiven and set free through believing in Jesus Christ, the Savior who gave himself for us, who gave his life as a sacrifice to pay the price for our sin, who offers us forgiveness and redemption through his shed blood, the power of his resurrection. This news changes everything. No doubt you can think in your life to a few key moments, a few key events in your own life, in your own story, that you would perhaps look at and you would say, you know, when I heard this news, it changed everything. Perhaps it's a good news of, you know, an addition to a family or something of that nature. Perhaps it was really bad news of a, a diagnosis or, uh, or, or an accident or some other tragedy. Maybe it was in a historical event, such as 9-11 or the Murrah bombing, right? We, we can all point back to certain key moments in our lives, key moments in our, our personal history, in our own story that we would say, you know, these events were transformative. These events really, they changed everything, Here's the point that I want you to see. As powerful as those moments are in our lives, as powerful as those moments may have been both for us as individuals, for us as families, for us as a community, a nation, the truth is that this key news, this good news is the most transformational, the most powerful the most important news of all human history, that Jesus gave himself for us on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And because he was resurrected on the third day, because he conquered sin and death, he has made a way for us to be forgiven and set free. He paid the price for us, and this news changes everything. But I wonder, has there ever been a moment in your life when this news has changed you? Has there ever been a moment in your life where this good news has transformed you? When it has changed your own personal story? When you have been forgiven and set free from your sin by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus? Mark makes it so clear here. So really, so black and white, doesn't he? That Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And because of that news, we can have forgiveness. We can be set free and we ought to go and proclaim that news to others. Has there ever been a moment in your life when by faith you've trusted in Jesus, you have entered into this same story that Mark tells When your life has been transformed by the gospel. In a moment this morning, we're going to have a time of invitation. It's really a time of response where we respond to this truth. And in this moment of invitation, as we stand together and we sing a song of invitation, our staff will be here at the front, ready to pray with you, ready to receive you. Today, if you recognize that there's never been a time in your life when you've trusted in Jesus when you've admitted your sin before him, when you believed in, in your heart that, that he truly did what the scripture says that he would do and what, he, what in fact he did, that you believe, that you believe that Jesus gave himself for you, that he died on the cross, that he was resurrected, and then importantly, that you've confessed him as Lord and Savior of your life. And today, we would, we would invite you, we would extend the invitation to you that you would trust Jesus Lord and Savior. In fact, let me just, let me just be as, as plain as I can be. If you've never trusted in Jesus today, I would beg you that you would come during our invitation and you would surrender your life to Him. Why? Because this story changes everything. When we trust in Jesus, when we place our faith in Him, it has the power to transform us and to change everything about our lives. And so, in a moment, as we sing this song, we want to invite you to make the story of Jesus central to your life's story by placing your faith and your trust in him. First, would you pray with me? And as we pray together, I want to just, I just want to ask That God would stir our hearts to respond in obedience to him. In in, in obedience, recognizing all that he's done to make a way for us to be forgiven. that, that, That he would stir our hearts now to be moved by him and to be moved to surrender all that we have to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you gave everything for us. Jesus, we praise you that you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. We could never hope to pay the price for our sin because we're fallen, imperfect, trapped even in that sin, and yet we understand that you lived a sinless, perfect life, that you died on a cross, that you were resurrected from the dead, thus making a way for us to be forgiven and set free. Jesus, believing that this power has that this news, excuse me, has power to transform us today, we want to respond by faith and obedience to you. We want to surrender our lives to you. We believe that this good news changes everything. May it change us, transforming us from the inside out as we trust in you. Stir in our hearts. We pray now as we respond by faith to you. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. As we stand together now to sing this song of invitation, our altars are open here.